On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hand and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Good morning. I'd like to introduce our speaker for today. Um, his name is Greg Shu. He's a, been a friend of mine uh, with InterVarsity for the past eight years. Um, he currently is serving as an area director for InterVarsity in the Boston Division. And he came up here after seven years of working at UVA. And he's planted an Asian-specific fellowship there. He is, grew up in Lincoln, Mass., and so he's familiar with this area. He grew up in the Southborough Church, which many of you have friends at. And he recently got married to a woman named Lily, who's also on staff with InterVarsity. Um, as he comes to speak today, he'll also be a retreat speaker in September, so you'll get a glimpse of um, the word that God has put on his heart for our congregation. So if you would please welcome Greg Shu. Morning, everyone. Um, it's a delight to be with you here uh, this morning. Uh, as Fick said, I uh, grew up in this area pretty close by and had many friends in this church. And uh, I just love being back in Boston among people that uh, I connect with and understand, who drive the way I drive, and who cheer for the teams that I cheer for and don't hate me for it. So uh, I have been away a long time at the University of Virginia down in Charlottesville uh, doing ministry there, and I'm, I'm with the university. And so uh, it's a privilege to be with you uh, as I've been invited to to speak not just today but at the retreat because uh, when, when Pastor David and Patek and I were, were meeting we talked about this desire to grow as a community in, in our witness and evangelism and uh, I'm a professional campus minister so like that's literally part of my professional job title so I was like great I, I would love to be part of this and, and come and, and share some thoughts that I think could be helpful. So today we're, we're just going to get a taste. We're going to get a taste of some things, and hopefully it doesn't scare you away from coming to the retreat. Hopefully it encourages you to come. Um, and, and I think evangelism and good news is, is an incredibly important thing to be focusing on at this time. Um, it, it is good to in, be encouraged in our calling to share the good news, um, because it feels like something that is increasingly difficult to do. For so many reasons, it feels increasingly difficult to be able to talk 
reasonably and clearly about who God is, uh, who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Spirit is, and how that changes our lives. It feels more and more complicated. Uh, we need more and more language. We need more and more ways to, to uh, do this appropriately, it feels like. And so it is good to be encouraged in this. And so it is one of our clear commands and callings from Jesus, though. So what do we do? Well, my hope today and at the retreat eventually is to give us some ways to kind of move forward uh, by, by knowing what it is that God has for us in this calling that he's with us. But I'm going to read uh, from a portion of John, John 20, that was just read for us. Thanks for doing that. Um, which is one of the, the four commissions, one of, one of the great commissions, in case you didn't know, there's a, there are four. But this is the one in the Gospel of John. So, John 20, 19-23. We'll read the first part. So, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, so it is just days after the crucifixion when we get to this story. In this account, we find the disciples, they are hiding. They are afraid because their leader is dead and the world is against them. They think Jesus has abandoned them and they also feel guilty because they abandoned Jesus. They've locked the doors because they're afraid of what others will do to them. And that sounds a lot like us sometimes. I think we are worried about what people will say when they find out we are associated with Jesus. It must have been crazy, though, in that room. Like, I think with the story, it is, it is just a crazy scene. Like, how long have they been in there? Is there a bathroom in there? Did they shower? Where are they getting food? What are they doing? I imagine some of them are, like, trying to play cards to pass the time. I imagine James and John are arguing about who should now be the leader now that Jesus is gone. I imagine that uh, Matthew, tax collector as he used to be, is thinking about how much money they have so they can plan a, a quick and safe exit strategy. I also imagine Peter's over there in the corner muttering to himself, berating himself. Why did I deny him? Why did I deny him? I shouldn't deny him. So it's not a pretty scene. This group, they're not looking so good. It's not a good look. Their faith is pretty weak. But what I find comforting is that at this moment, when they are incredibly weak, pathetic, Jesus doesn't scold them or try to guilt trip them. So he somehow passes through the locked doors and the walls. And the first thing he says, as they're kind of surprised, is, Peace be with you. And upon receiving this peace, the disciples feel this joy fall over them. And I think this says a lot about Jesus and what it means to share the good news. When we are at our worst, most pathetic, Jesus does not come to scold us, but to encourage us. See, the world outside hasn't changed. The people in power haven't changed. But somehow seeing Jesus, it feels so different. They can have joy. I think when when we are worried or guilty or fearful about sharing the good news, we should look to a passage like this. Look to this passage even, 
Right? Instead of focusing on, on how bad the response will be or how to form this perfect set of arguments, maybe we should look to Jesus and the peace he wants us to have, and then maybe we would feel some joy instead. So see, Jesus says, peace be with you again. Maybe they're like so surprised they didn't understand it. Maybe, you know, Peter, he's always like, well, you know, you wash my feet, can you wash my head and my hands too? So, all right, here's a little extra. Right? A little more peace, a little more peace for you. So Jesus gives them peace. Why? Because he himself was sent in peace. Right? Father, Son, and Spirit, they sent the Son, not out of anger, but out of peace. And in peace. They're not anxious about the coming of the kingdom. They're at peace about this unfolding. We should be too. We shouldn't share the gospel out of anxiety. We shouldn't share the gospel out of worry, but from a place of joy and peace. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to be nervous when, when you're talking to somebody who you care about, you're having an important conversation. Of course you're going to be tense as you think about what to say. But we should be doing this from a place of being grounded in the reality of the risen Lord, not being fearful. And then Jesus breathes on them and, and gives them the Spirit. And, and, you know, it's only after giving them peace that Jesus gives them the commission. He sends them out to be his body and his ambassadors. But he doesn't send them out alone. Right? He sends them with the Spirit that they would receive the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would not just like, be around them, but like, within them. They're not alone. And I think this is good news for us, as we share the good news, because when it comes to evangelism, don't we often feel alone? Where we picture ourselves sitting across the table from somebody trying to clearly explain the mechanics of the resurrection and hopefully it makes sense. Right? You could feel alone in that moment. But, but actually, you know, while it would be good to practice, right? while it would be good to know a diagram or two or something, even if you don't, the Holy Spirit is with you. So Jesus has appeared to the disciples. They experience joy at seeing him. They experience peace within them because he gives it to them. And now the Spirit is within them. They have, a, they have a commission. They also have the power and resources to go and do it. Joy over us. Peace, within, uh, peace with us. Spirit within us. This is our proper method of evangelism. Okay, go and do likewise. Let us pray. I'm just kidding. This is Chinese church. I've got to talk for 25 more minutes. I get it. Okay, so, so I would like to end the passage here. It's four verses. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus drawing near to us in our need, giving us what we need to go spend the message. I would love to end the passage here. It seems instructive even. Cultivate joy. Uh, live in a posture of peace. Get to know the Spirit. It seems pretty easy, but unfortunately the story doesn't end here. I think if it just ended here, evangelism maybe in a world, it would feel so simple, but the story continues, I think, because in real life, the experience of God, the experience of sharing the good news is a bit more complicated. The next part of the story is one that many of us know or think we know. We know it so well that we even ascribe to the main character a new adjective as if it's his name. We call him Doubting Thomas because of this story. We don't know anything else about him from the majority of the text and so we just decide that Doubting is the main adjective by which we're going to know him. Right? But I actually think that this passage is a little bit misunderstood. And I think it also offers a critical insight into who Jesus really is and how he really works and also how we are called to be as his witnesses. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out and put your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, so one application you could make from this particular part of the text is that you should not miss Bible study, church, or retreat, no matter how busy you are, because you don't know what's going to happen when you're not there. You don't want to miss out. That's not actually an accurate reading of the text, so I'm not going to offer that to you, but you know, it would make one wonder if that's something you should think about. You know? so, but, but let's we'll go on to the actual passage of this text. What is it actually saying? See, for all of my life, I would read this story... And I was taught that Thomas had a problem with doubt. And the word is there, don't get me wrong, doubt, doubting, believe, don't doubt, it's there. But doubt, in our present age, in this day, in our cultural context, doubt is really associated with disbelief or refusal to agree due to like a lack of evidence or proof. It's rather factual. Evidence-based. Testing the veracity of a claim, something like that, right? And, and of course, it is hard to believe that there was a human who was really dead, and then now that same human is now really alive. Like, I would think that most people, if they heard that kind of story, would want some kind of physical evidence. Photograph or something. They didn't have that back then, but you know, pretty good. So it makes sense. I'm not saying there's, there's no legitimacy to the idea that there's doubt at play here. But I don't think that Thomas's responses and actions in this story are because he's skeptical. Alright, so, so let's back into the story. Right? So, um, Jesus comes to the disciples, we just read that. It's really great. They all have a great experience. Oh my gosh, wow, their faith is restored. They feel peace, they feel joy. But Thomas was not with them. How is that even possible? Like, they literally do everything together. Thomas was not with them? This raises so many questions. Where was Thomas? What was he doing? What happened to him? Maybe he got stir-crazy, like, it maybe didn't smell very good in there because everyone is, like, nervous and nervous sweat. You know, maybe he's like, I can't take this. Or maybe he got tired of hearing Peter kind of, like, constantly kind of, like, berating himself over and over again. He said, you know what, I, I can't take it. Maybe maybe he went for a walk. I don't know. But Thomas is not with them. Thomas isn't with them. So, when he comes back to the house, after doing whatever he did, the room is like really different. Right? Everyone's gloomy and confused and nervous and goes, he leaves, and he, he comes back and like, now it's really different. That would have been like the strangest thing, you know, you do the secret knock, you say the secret password, they let you in, like they're all like, ah! And he's like, what just happened? Why are you all like this? So we ask them, what is going on? Why is everybody happy? Why are you all so calm? Like, 
Peter's finally stopped talking to himself, like Peter never stops talking, what is going on? Why are you all like this? And they say, we have seen the Lord! And they're so happy, but Thomas can't accept this. This doesn't make Thomas happy to hear this. See, when we read these words about what he's about to say next, I don't think Thomas is having some sort of like intellectual chess game in his head about like, I wonder about the metaphysical possibility of the revivification of dead flesh and whether it's possible that... I don't think he's having this conversation in his head. It's not like that. He's not, he's not doing some decision tree matrix about the, the theological legitimacy of their claim. He's not doing that. I think he's upset. There's just a lot of emotion in his words. Because, like, have you ever actually considered how inappropriate, like, his next set of words is? It's super inappropriate. Like, really rude. Really crass. Not, not okay. Like, Jesus just died. Like, you can't, you can't talk about his wounds like that. It's like really, really not okay. But he, he, he says what he says. No, guys, stop, stop it. Stop it right now. What are you all saying? Jesus is dead. We all saw him die. We were all there. We all saw him die. No, no he was not just here. No, don't, don't give me that. Right? If Jesus was actually in this room, why isn't he still here? I was only gone a couple of hours. No, no, no. This, you guys are crazy. No, no. Stop it. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where those nails were, and unless I put my hands in his side, then I'm not going to believe what you guys just said. When I read this, I don't get the sense that this is doubt. This sounds an awful lot like pain. And indeed, Thomas was in pain. Very real pain. This working class Jew had left his job, his income, his hometown, his family, to follow Jesus wherever Jesus went because he believed that Jesus would bring the kingdom of God and save them all. And now Jesus is dead. There goes all of Thomas's hope for a better world. And he's also personally hurting because his mentor and his friend is gone. And he's also feeling betrayed and confused because now he's not sure if anything that Jesus said was actually true. Jesus, you said all these things about the kingdom, and, but you're dead. He's confused. He feels like a fool. He's so scared for his life. I think he's trying to hold it together. Just get through the day. He's trying to grieve and process the loss of Jesus. And maybe that's why he went for a walk. He couldn't stand it in there with the way they were all dealing with it. He needed his own space to do his own thing. So when he comes back and they say they saw Jesus, Jesus who I feel guilty about betraying, Jesus who I'm angry at for leaving, Jesus for whom I'm confused about why you died, Jesus, you saw Jesus. No, 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 no. It's just too much for him. Hence his really rude outburst. Have any of you ever had this sort of experience? Like, maybe your family is undergoing an immense amount of stress. And even though it's like quiet in the house, you can feel it in the air. 
Maybe uh, you and your spouse, or if your kids, your parents are fighting worse than ever, or maybe like as bad as ever because it's all the time. Maybe there's a school you apply to, a major you really want to get into, a job you're really working towards. Maybe as a company you started and you poured yourself into. Maybe there's a relationship you thought was the one. Then, somehow, it ends or you fall short and you have nothing. And maybe to make it worse, like when you're in group settings, maybe even among Christians, you like feel nervous about talking about your real prayer request because everybody else seems to be doing quite well, better than you are. Or the last time you did talk about how hard it's been at home, the nice, Christian, factually, biblically correct answer you got was, well, just have faith, and it didn't really rub you the right way. Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you're having that experience right now. See, I think when we're in pain, faith can be hard to come by. It doesn't feel like Jesus is with us. It doesn't feel like Scripture is relevant. It doesn't feel like His promises are true. So we wonder, what am I doing with all my time on Sundays and Fridays and small group? Where am I, where am I even going? What's the point of even praying if when I, when I talk, it just feels like it bounces off the ceiling? What's the point? Is Jesus actually who He says He is? Is He as good as He says He is? What am I even doing? Right? So, so we have wonders and worries and doubts. These come up. Now, doubts and questions and issues, they do require a real response. If you find yourself in a place where you're really asking a genuine question about the goodness of God or you know, the nature of you know, Him being able to be omniscient or omnipresent, these are great questions. But most of our doubts are not really rational. Now, I don't mean that they're not about, about rational things. It's rational to wonder about the possibility of the resurrection. But what I say is they're not rational because they don't come from a rational place of just wondering something. They come from a place of pain. And I bring this up today, and I think this is important because so much of our evangelistic energy, so much of our evangelistic anxiety is focused around dealing with people's doubts. But so rarely is it about dealing with people's pains. Now, I grew up going to a wonderful and healthy Chinese-American church. Chinese-American church with the you know, English-speaking youth group and all this stuff. And it was, I had a really good experience. Like, I'm, not, I'm thankfully not one of those for whom like, the Asian church like, really turned me off from Jesus. Okay? I had a pretty good experience. But even in that context, I remember like, among um, my youth group friends, like, you were always a little nervous if one of the friends started expressing like, doubts about God. So like, you, have, like, you try to stay quiet sometimes. You're like, oh, I don't want to tell anybody. I'm a little confused about like how the resurrection happens and like how does the Holy Spirit in you and I don't really know. But you, you never want to say it out loud because because if you did, you saw what would happen. What would happen is the parents would like ah freak out because oh my gosh my child's an apostate and he's only 14. I'm, this is terrible. Uh, what do I do? What do I do? Well, uh, C.S. Lewis, read that. You didn't like it? read it again. I, I'm just saying you would just get every okay. Well, read more. In like, when I was growing up, Blue Like Jazz was really popular. I don't think it's very popular anymore, but it was very popular when I was growing up. Some of you remember this book. These days, it's, uh, what, Tim Keller, Reason for God? 
Read this. Read all three. Or they go to the the youth pastor, can you talk to my child? The pastor's like, like what? What do you think I do every Sunday? Like, what do you... No, but like, can you... Can you... Right? (laughs) No, but can you, can you like, you know, can you, can you, can you talk to my child? We're trying. He can't be too direct, right? So the person's like, I mean, yeah, sure, yes, I can. You're like, what am I giving? I'll take you for ice cream, I guess, and we'll talk about how you're doing. I don't know, right? But, but there's this anxiety around doubt because for some reason we have this concern that doubt is some kind of cardinal sin. Like a spiritual STI or something. If you get it, you're dead. Like, you know, I don't know. We're in trouble, right? Now, the truth is that, like, doubt is, doubt is real. Some doubts are not very healthy. The way we approach doubts can be healthier and healthier. That's all true, right? But it's not some kind of cardinal sin. Like, Jesus doesn't, like, it's, like, it's, it's not the unforgivable sin anyway, right? Like, if that is even real in the scripture, it's, it's not that. We treat it like it is. Like, oh no. So, you can have doubts. It's normal. People in the scripture have doubts. Real people, real Christians, real Christian leaders have doubts. So, if you have, like, a normal doubt, like, normal kinds of doubt, like, you, sometimes books can help. Like, if you have, like, legitimate, like, just, I'm really curious and confused about something, well, then a book can help. You can read it, reason about it, discuss it. Scriptural engagement, talk it over, and usually this will help the doubt get resolved. It doesn't mean it will just go away. I'm not saying you should throw them away, but it will usually get you someplace you understand enough to kind of proceed. But a normal kind of doubt, books, discussion, talking to my child, that can help. But that's not the majority of doubts I come across. So, like, for some of you in this room... Like, you look at me, you're like, oh my gosh, you're so old. And other people are like, why is this young guy even up here talking, right? So, I can't really please anybody. But I'll tell you, I've done four years of ministry as a college student, and then I'm in, entering my ninth year of ministry uh, within a varsity. So, like, my 13 years of being around college students, I will tell you that I've done a lot of gospel sharing, sharing the gospel in many forms. So, I've done it, like, one-on-one. We have a conversation. We do a diagram. We talk about your personal life. I've done it in a small group setting. Where we're doing, like, a, a discussion. I kind of explain the passage. I've done it from, from a friend on a stage in a large group setting, and I give a call to faith, and, you know, like a response thing, all that kind of stuff. I've got all these different versions of uh, uh, sharing the gospel. I've done, a, I've done it a fair amount. And I will tell you that in all of my 12-ish years, 12 plus years of ministry experience, doubt, in the sense of atheism, questions, unsolved questions about the reality of God, atheism is not the problem I run into most of the time. You know, the truth is, I'm not sure I've ever met a real atheist. Because a real atheist has a purely intellectual worldview question about is God real? If God is real, what is God like? If God is like this, do I assent to that? I believe in that? I want to trust in that? It's, it's a pretty logically legitimate, logical, causal chain of questions. But that's not what I find. I've never met a real atheist. I'm pretty sure they actually existed when my parents like were younger. Like. I think that actually there was an age in which the question piece was the main thing. Which is why I think evangelism developed around this idea of like answering questions and apologetics and giving books. Like, you know, Christian literature tables, like giving out books on campus, used to be like an university campus ministry strategy. Like, you just like, hey! Patek and I, we're laughing, because like, that would never work today. They're like, you'd just be out there getting a sunburn all day. Right? Nobody wants to read anymore anyway. Right? So they're like, lemonade? Oh no, never mind. But that used to be a legitimate strategy because people had questions. I don't think that's what people have these days. I think they don't have questions, but atheism is not the problem. I've never met a real atheist. Now, what I meet is people 
who, who asked me a specific kind of question. Because atheists would ask me things like, Greg, can you tell me the mechanics of the resurrection and how in this invisible way, through spiritual means, all sin is dealt with for individuals in all of humanity? That's a hard question. That's a rational question if you're curious about Christianity. That's a rational question. Or you might say, Greg, can you explain to me the Trinity? All the, theologians, all the seminarians in here are like getting nervous because it's awkward, right? You're like, yeah, that's hard. Right? That's a legitimate question. It's a hard one to answer. It's a legitimate question if what's your questions about Christianity are, I have some logical conundrums about the nature of God. Right? These, are, these are the questions that I would think you would want to ask. That's never what I get asked. I never get asked about the resurrection. I never get asked about the Trinity. I always get asked about two things. The first one in particular. People always ask me some variation of why does a good God allow suffering in the world? And second, something about the nature of what is the nature of God's character? Is he actually good? Does he have good things for me? Always that. Like I've never done a Q&A and gotten one of the other questions. It's always about that. Why? Why is it always about that? Because all the people who had really strong doubts, I find, ended up being people who had really strong hurts. You don't usually see it at first, because the more deeply held the doubt, the more articulate and complex and well thought out it sounds. So you feel like, well, maybe it is. Like They've clearly read a lot, so clearly this doubt is like the real thing. And maybe it is, but maybe it's not. I actually think that most of the time, for most people in this cultural generation, doubt is, maybe unintentionally, it's a defense mechanism. It's a reflex. It's a kind of denial. It's a way of taking this personal hurt, which made me question the nature of the universe and if there's a God, and instead of talking about how painful it is, instead of going to the actual hurt itself, creating some buffer zone and keeping it out here in the intellectual realm, which is much safer, and because, you know, if you're a competent person intellectually, you feel like you have more control over it, so let's just create some distance. That's doubt. This is why Thomas says what he says. I won't believe until I touch the wounds. Okay, this offensive statement, I don't think he's like daring Jesus to come and show himself. I don't think he is. I think he's daring the disciples to bring this up again. He's trying to offend them, to shock them, to provoke them, to get them to leave him alone because it's too painful to talk about. Jesus left us and now he's back? I can't bear to lose him again. I can't bear to go through all this again. There's no, 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 no. Just guys, just stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. When you talk to these people about these questions, again, suffering the world, God's character and goodness or whatever, if they let me, I usually ask a bunch more questions. We'll talk a little bit and then I'll, I'll try and move towards something a little bit more direct. I say, okay, but you know, we've been talking about this for a while. Can you tell me though, why does this question matter to you? And they get, you know, morally indignant. Well, of course I care about suffering the world. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know, I know, I know that. That's fine. Why does it matter to you personally? Because you seem very personally, individually invested in this question. And if they decide that they want to trust me with this information, which they don't have to, right? What I usually find is something very personal and very painful underneath. They care about suffering in the world because they lost a friend to a car crash. 
they lost a parent to cancer. They've experienced what poverty and hardship has done to their family or their people. They've experienced abuse of many kinds. So, so really what they're asking is, God, where were you when this happened? Maybe they care about God's character because when you think of God as being all-powerful and having all this authority, you know, they, they've never seen someone exercise power and authority with that same grace and mercy, so can it actually exist? Or their dreams and their hopes just never come to fruition, so does God really have good things for us? God, are you better than any of these worldly examples? God, are you actually wanting good things for me? Okay, so... I hear them share this with me, and so if at this point I decided that a rational truth claim about the nature of God is the appropriate response, I think that would be rather insensitive. Wow, your friend died in a car crash. Well, God is sovereign. No, no, whoa, 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 no. If you've done that, it'd be good during response and to repent of that sort of behavior, okay? So don't do that, okay? Be, be sensitive, right? Don't be insensitive, right? If you code it as doubt, you've missed the point in this moment. See, as people called to share the gospel, we need to engage with people where they are, which means addressing them in their pain. Which for some of us feels foreign. I think for some of us that might feel like, oh my gosh, that's some, that I can do. Praise God. Now, thankfully, we don't have to kind of reinvent evangelism on the basis of this revelation. Because actually, Jesus himself shows us how he wants us to be. He shows us how to witness to someone for whom doubt and pain is intermingled. Right? So, so the next part of the passage, right, after Thomas does this whole outburst, they all kind of cool off. It's been a week. Right? Now, Peter is less self-conscious. He's able to play cards and not be annoying. Right? James and John have, like, Divided labor and leadership, so they're like cool now, right? Matthew's no longer counting money, but he's like, you know, maybe I can like write down some stories that I heard, and maybe I'll share that with people later. I don't know. They're all doing in pretty good mood, except I don't know what Thomas is doing, but he's just there. And then, bam! Jesus shows up in the middle of the card game, right, right there. I think that must be so disorienting to want to see Jesus like walk through the wall, right, or through the door, or appear, like, however you want to imagine that happening, right? Um, it must be so disorienting, right? But again, you know, they're, in their, they're shocked, they're worried, and he says, no, no, don't worry, peace be with you, I'm with you, oh my gosh, praise God, it's so wonderful, God, Jesus is here again, and he gives us peace, it's so nice, you know, Jesus never met a bear he couldn't get through, wow, praise be to God, he's so good, it's so comforting, isn't it? Well, it's not for Thomas. Everyone else is like, oh, you're here again! And Thomas is like, oh my God, oh, I'm in trouble. Oh no. I'm gonna go for a walk again. <laughs> right? He's in bit, he's freaked out. He feels terrible. I'm just gonna leave now, it's okay, you know. But, Jesus is so good, isn't he? Like, Thomas has every reason to feel embarrassed. He was super rude, super crude, super inappropriate, super disrespectful, completely without reverence. And then when Jesus comes, instead of scolding him or berating him or giving him some lesson to learn, he looks right at Thomas and he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach at your hand. Put it into my side. 
Stop doubting and believe. And I don't think he said this in anger. Like, you could read it that way. Right? Like, I'm here. Touch the nail. Like, I don't think he did that. Right? I don't think that's not... I think if you hear it that way, like, maybe you should reread about what Jesus is really like. I don't think he's like that. Right? He's so kind. And I think Jesus quoted it back to him, though. He did this exact wording thing to prove to Thomas that he heard him from on high. Thomas thought he was just doing this angry outburst. God doesn't love me, there is no God. Leave me alone. But, but Jesus is saying, you don't know that, but you were praying. I heard you. And I'm not afraid of your anger and your pain. Praise be to God. Okay, so now it's worth pointing out that like, as soon as Thomas saw Jesus, as soon as Jesus like, you know, apparates into the room or whatever, right? I'm pretty sure Thomas has no more doubts. Like, I'm pretty sure Thomas is like, oh, Jesus is here. Jesus is real. That's the real Jesus. I don't think he was like, I wonder if that is like a, a clone, like, whatever, they don't have a term for clone, but I wonder if that person is actually, I don't think he had that question. I think his doubts, his, his questions of truth were all settled. Right? I don't think he was like, hmm, well, I will, I, as I said before, I will only know if Jesus is real if I actually touch the specific, you know, I don't think he didn't do that. Okay? That's even more rude, right? He's trying to hide at this point. He's not trying to touch, touch Jesus. Right? But Jesus still goes through this whole action step of telling and, I think, making Thomas touch the wounds. Why? Well, I think it reminds me of other miracles that Jesus does. Because right? he can heal people from afar. He does it with the centurion servant. Just He's healed. But he often actually chooses a method that involves touch or movement, like a physical act. And he does that on purpose. See, the touch is, is usually more about the emotional, communal, or relational healing of the person. The bleeding woman touches his garment, and he says, you, he does it in public on purpose. You, you are made well. Instead of everybody who thought she was unclean, she said, you're clean again. When the leper is, is ill, he goes over and touches the leper and cleanses him. Not just to cleanse him, but to say, because he is cleansed, because I know him, he's worthy to be touched. Don't shun him anymore. Be near him. He restores him. He, he speaks into the isolation and the pain somehow. And actually, isn't this who Jesus is? Isn't this who Jesus Christ actually is? He is the God who put on flesh so that we could touch Him and He could touch us. We touch Him with our sin and it kills Him, but it doesn't defeat Him. And He reaches out to touch and restore our lost and broken heart and spirit. But for Thomas, this touch, it does not answer questions. I think Thomas always still had questions. Why did you actually have to die? I'm not sure they understood all this in this moment. He doesn't like teach them about the nature of the resurrection in this account right here. I don't think he got his answer. Why did you have to die? Why did it go like that? Why do we feel these feelings? But he got something that was different than an answer, maybe better than an answer. He got the experience of knowing that Jesus himself is wounded and is with us in our wounds. Now that may not answer why is there suffering in the world, but it also might. It also might. See, when, when Jesus meets him in his place of pain, it results in a proclamation of faith, doesn't it? My Lord and my God, he says. He doesn't affirm the possibility of the reality of Jesus. He calls him Lord and God right away. What I find is that when we offer healing love, when we embody God's healing love, when we tell people God's healing love, more than we talk about doubt stuff, what I find is that people in pain, their doubts seem to melt away or get resolved or be put in the proper place. They don't necessarily go away, but they fall into the right order. And they can proceed. It's no longer a barrier. And as ambassadors for Jesus, I think we should look to do this for people. 
and for ourselves too as Christians or exploring Christ, if you find yourself in a place of doubt or in a place of being stuck, it might be because there is a pain that is kind of undergirding all of it. So gently, with grace for yourself, you might want to ask the Spirit, why do I struggle with this particular set of issues so much? We'll talk more about that at the retreat. I've got lots more to say about that particular set of topics. But maybe ask that. Begin asking that. Why am I stuck on this? Don't hate yourself for it. Just ask it. But that's not the end of the passage. Okay? Again, not the end. You'd like to end it here. Wow, my Lord and my God. Amen. End of John. Nope. See, because Jesus then proceeds to say something that's sort of weird. Right? You have seen and therefore have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Now, I don't think that Jesus is being mean to Thomas. You could read it that way. Although I will say, Jesus has a sense of humor, so he could be like teasing Thomas. He's like, hey, you're one of the apostles and you didn't believe me until you saw me. There'll be lots of people who don't see me. They're still going to believe. Huh? Like, Jesus is funny and he does stuff like this, right? He sleeps in the middle of a storm just to tease his... Yeah, maybe he's like that, okay? So, maybe he's teasing him. But I don't think this is to be unkind. I think it's actually an invitation and a challenge. He says, Thomas, I showed myself to you. Can you show me to others who may never meet me? Because I still want to know them. I want them to know me. And because Thomas is so utterly actually changed... He took this to heart. When Jesus met him in his place of pain, his barriers to belief went away, but also his barriers to evangelism went away. And it shows. Actually, Thomas, by some measures, he never gets the credit, is probably the best evangelist by certain measures of all the apostles. He did better than all of them by certain measures. He went further than all of them by any measure. He went way further than Paul. And he made it all the way to India. It's like a lot of miles. It's like a lot of miles. Yeah, if you walked for uh, six hours a day, I think it would take you 176 days to get there. Assuming you didn't like fall off a cliff of the 20,000 foot elevation change up and down, which is on the map, and die. Right? He went a long way. I imagine that the route to India was harder then than it is today. This route says, this route involves a ferry. There may not have been a ferry, okay? He went a long way. He went further than anybody else. Why? Because the gospel compelled him. Because it was good news. And when he got there, his witness ended up leading to a a denomination of Christians in a particular area called Kerala, the south of India, Many of them are from the same ethnic group, you know, the Malayali people. It's kind of like in missions we talk about reaching a people group. Well, I think he actually did that. And when you ask these people what kind of Christians they are, you know what they tell you? They say, oh, we are Mar Thoma Christians. Mar means sir or saint. Thoma is Thomas. We are St. Thomas Christians. They're like the original Asian Christians, you know. So they, they've been there a long time. And, and this group took their faith so seriously, they started changing their own names to be biblical names. Right? So they took on Andrew and Matthew, and many of them took on the surname Thomas. And in particular, one person from this particular line of Thomases came to the University of Virginia in 2010, where I was at, and I was beginning to plant this Asian American ministry, particularly to reach out to non-unreached Asians, non-Christian Asians, doubting Asians, who were not part of the church. And I was in desperate need of some leaders. And this one particular person with the last name Thomas decided that she wanted to invest in our fellowship. 
It's our first leader, Gina Thomas, the first leader of Asian Diversity at UVA. She led people to Christ. She's a normal leader. She's not in ministry, right? She just walked with one of our most seemingly atheistic students through a lot of questions and would always point him back to, is Jesus good? Do you want to know Jesus? She just said, but a lot of other leaders to also share the gospel. So the witness of Thomas, oh yeah, this is her, so this is the group of Asian University, just some of the, the closest students of mine at our wedding. There's many more beyond that. She's there on the far right. Um, this is us doing an Asian family portrait. Angel's in serious business. Um, the witness of Thomas lives on, doesn't it? I'm indebted to it. Students I know know Christ because of Thomas through another Thomas 2,000 some years later. Because that is what the gospel can do. To share the gospel, you don't have to be a superhero, though maybe Thomas actually was, but he didn't start that way. You just have to be open to dealing with your own pains, to offering Christ to other people in theirs, to listening to the heart of the matter, to offering them knowledge of Jesus. Don't worry about 17 counter-arguments and 15-point proofs. Don't worry about that. Learn them if you want to, but learn to love. Isn't that what Jesus does? Isn't that what he always did? So, may we go, worried about doubt no more, but giving grace to those in their pain that Jesus would breathe new life into them. And as we look towards retreat in September, uh, later this fall, may we bring our full selves with our own worries and fears and anxieties that by offering them to Christ and letting Him in, we could be made better witnesses of the life-changing gospel that Jesus has given us. Let's pray. Father and Spirit, we thank you that you know what we need even when we don't know what we need. We thank you that when we are angry, you take it as a prayer. We thank you that when we talk about doubt, you know that it's actually pain. Would you help us, Lord, to experience this kind of love from you? And would you help us, Lord, to give this kind of love to others? As we think about the fall, for those of us going back to school or sending kids to school, would we look for opportunities to be this kind of loving partner? Because we know that you have done it for us and so many of us have been blessed by people who have done this very same thing. Cast out fear. Cast out worry about doubt. Instead, give us peace. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus, name we pray. Amen.